Welcome to the June 3rd, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today we will review a study in sickle cell disease patients reporting abnormal retention of mitochondria in circulating red cells and elevated mitochondrial DNA in plasma. Learn more about the fate of FLT3 ITD clones in AML patients treated with mitostorin, and look at a study showing for the first time that selected elderly patients with newly diagnosed multiple myeloma benefit from modification of standard myeloma treatment based on the level of frailty. Our first topic is a manuscript entitled, Circulating Mitochondrial DNA is a Pro-Inflammatory Damp in Sickle Cell Disease, by Lakshminath Tumburu and colleagues, led by Sui Lei Tain at the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute in Bethesda, Maryland. Sickle cell disease presents with diverse clinical manifestations and multi-system organ damage driven by chronic inflammation, while the sickle pathology is initiated by polymerization of hemoglobin S. The end organ damage is inflicted by years of ongoing inflammation and vasculopathy, evidenced by the elevation of inflammatory markers that includes activator neutrophils, pro-inflammatory cytokines such as IL-6, TNF-alpha, and IL-1-beta, along with molecules with inflammatory potential, referred to as damage-associated molecular patterns, or DAMPs, many derived from red blood cells. It is difficult to identify the exact sequence of events that lead to the chronic inflammatory state in sickle cell disease, but suggested causes include red blood cell alterations, hemolysis, and hemoglobin products, the vaso-occlusion process itself, and ischemia reperfusion injury. During vaso-occlusive episodes, apoptotic and necrotic cells, including those of erythroid origin, release damps that include heme, microparticles, histones, nucleosomes, mitochondrial DNA, and extracellular DNA. These damps can potentially generate high levels of intravascular reactive oxygen species, contributing to the oxidative microenvironment. Plasma from sickle cell patients, particularly during vaso-occlusive episodes, activates neutrophils, including formation of neutrophil extracellular traps, or NETs, with cell-free heme implicated as the trigger. Nets constitute a meshwork of extracellular DNA, nucleosomes, histones, and neutrophil proteases with various immunostimulatory effects and can contribute to recurring inflammation. Here, Tumburu and colleagues hypothesize that cell-free DNA, also known to be increased in the plasma of sickle cell patients, was more than a prognostic biomarker and set out to investigate how elevated cell-free DNA levels could contribute to pathological inflammation. They collected blood samples from sickle cell patients at baseline and during vaso-occlusive episodes, along with samples from healthy controls and individuals with sickle trait. Whole genome sequencing of cell-free DNA showed that sickle cell patients had a significantly higher proportion of mitochondrial to nuclear DNA compared to healthy controls. Moreover, cell-free mitochondrial DNA levels were approximately 5- to 10-fold higher at baseline compared to healthy controls. Using flow cytometry, structured illumination microscopy, and electron microscopy, the authors showed that circulating sickle cell disease red blood cells abnormally retained their mitochondria. Normally, 
mitochondrial clearance occurs when reticulocytes mature to erythrocytes. But this process appears to be impaired in sickle cell disease, and thus, likely to be the source of the elevated cell-free mitochondrial DNA. The team also used genome-wide methylation analysis to compare the epigenetic profile of cell-free DNA in healthy controls and in sickle cell disease samples. Patient samples showed a significant and disproportionately increased hypomethylation compared to healthy controls, which was further increased in samples obtained during vasoocclusive crises when compared to steady state. Additional studies showed that patient plasma containing high levels of cell-free mitochondrial DNA triggered formation of nets. Natosis was substantially reduced by an inhibitor of the kinase TBK1. This result implicates a role for the C-gas sting pathway for inducing net formation when neutrophils detect cell-free DNA. Tumburu and colleagues conclude that their findings implicate cell-free mitochondrial DNA as an underappreciated and important erythrocyte-derived DEMP that contributes to the ongoing pathological inflammation in sickle cell disease. Further understanding of the crosstalk between various signature components of sickle cell disease, which includes impaired mitophagy and ineffective erythropoiesis, hemolysis, inflammation triggered by non-erythroid cells, and the emerging immunomodulatory role of erythrocytes, will be vital in elucidating the underlying mechanisms among these components. In an accompanying commentary, Kevin Rarick and Kirkwood Pritchard from the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee state that the evidence supporting the author's core observations is considerable, and the data provide intriguing support for the idea that the sickle erythrocyte is likely the primary cellular source for circulating cell-free mitochondrial DNA. They also note that these findings will spur further studies to unravel the complex processes by which sickle erythrocytes increase inflammation beyond just the damage they cause to the vessel wall. For example, the mechanism of exactly how cell-free mitochondrial DNA causes inflammation and its relative contribution compared to other damps implicated in sickle cell disease will require further investigation. While the authors focused on net formation, Additional work is needed to clarify these issues. Direct comparisons of damps in sickle cell disease, including in mouse models, will also reveal whether cell-free mitochondrial DNA is an important mediator of inflammation and vasocongestion, or just another biomarker. Our next study is titled Clonal Evolution of Acute Myeloid Leukemia with FLT3 IDT Mutation Under Treatment with Mitostarin by Laura Schmalbrock and colleagues, led by Constanze Döner from the University of Ulm and Lars Bullinger from Charité Berlin, both in Germany. Internal Tandem Duplications, or ITD, in the FIMS-related tyrosine kinase 3, or FLT3 gene, are found in approximately 25% of younger adult patients with acute myeloid leukemia. Multiple studies report an inferior outcome for FLT3-ITD-positive AML, in particular in patients with a high mutation-to-wild-type allelic ratio and patients with wild-type nucleophosphin 1. Activating mutations in FLT3 can be targeted with small-molecule tyrosine kinase inhibitors, or TKI, and several compounds are currently under investigation in clinical trials. Mitostorin, a first-generation TKI, targets not only FLT3, 
but multiple kinases, including protein kinase 3, platelet-derived growth factor receptors alpha and beta, cyclin-dependent kinase 1, and KIT. In the International Randomized Phase 3 Ratify Trial, Mitostorin significantly improved overall and event-free survival in patients 18 to 59 years of age with FLT3-mutated AML. However, only 59% of patients on the Mitostorin arm achieved protocol-specified complete remission, and almost half of the patients who achieved complete remission relapsed. To explore the underlying mechanisms of resistance or progression, Schmalbrock and colleagues studied patterns of clonal evolution in patients with FLT3-ITD-positive AML, who were entered on either the RATIFY trial or the AML-SG1610 trial, and received treatment with mitostorin. Paired samples from 54 patients, obtained at time of diagnosis and at time of either relapsed or refractory disease, were analyzed using conventional gene scan-based testing for FLT3-ITD as well as whole exome sequencing. The team also compared these findings to a control group of AML patients who received intensive chemotherapy without mitostorin. One important result was that at the time of disease resistance or progression, almost half of the patients who received mitostorin became FLT3-ITD negative, but acquired mutations in signaling pathways, such as RAS or MAP kinase, thereby providing a new proliferative advantage. In cases with FLT3-ITD persistence, the selection of resistant ITD clones was found in 11% as potential drivers of disease. In 32% of cases, no FLT3 ITD mutational change was observed, suggesting either resistance mechanisms that bypassed FLT3 inhibition or loss of mitostorin activity due to inadequate drug levels. In summary, this study provides novel insights into the clonal evolution and resistance mechanisms of FLT3-ITD-mutated AML under treatment with mitostorin in combination with intensive chemotherapy. In their accompanying commentary, Jacqueline Kloos and Gert Ossenkoppel from the UMC Amsterdam, the Netherlands, suggest that one of the important insights gained from this study was the clonal architecture of AML after mitostorin treatment. Although the control group was small, it showed that in a comparable cohort without mitostorin, the patients have a greater persistence of FLT3-ITD clones with a relatively higher allelic ratio. The current data imply a constant war on the upcoming clones that are selected by survival of the fittest. Ongoing studies that add FLT3 inhibitors to low-intensity treatment may also change the mutational landscape that evolves. In the near future, further insights into the clonal architecture will come from single-cell analyses showing possible biomarkers of clonal profiles that may identify patients eligible for a specific approach. Kloos and Ossenkoppel conclude that Schmalbrock and colleagues have paved the way for promising future research and treatment. Our final manuscript today is a study entitled Dose Schedule Adjusted RDR versus Continuous RD for Elderly Intermediate Fit Newly Diagnosed Multiple Myeloma Patients by Alessandro LaRocca from the University of Torino and colleagues from multiple centers in Italy. Combination therapies including lenalidomide dexamethasone, or RD, bortezomib melphalan prednisone, and bortezomib lenalidomide dexamethasone are considered standard treatment options for elderly multiple myeloma patients, not eligible for autologous stem cell transplantation. RD is effective and safe in elderly newly diagnosed myeloma patients of all ages, 
However, the outcome of patients older than 75 years of age in the first trial was suboptimal when compared to younger patients. Here, the study team conducted the first randomized Phase three trial investigating the efficacy and feasibility of a dose and schedule-adjusted RD followed by maintenance at a reduced dose of lenalidomide without dexamethasone, known as RDR, compared to standard continuous RD in elderly, newly diagnosed multiple myeloma patients, considered to be intermediate fit. The International Myeloma Working Group Frailty Score identifies fit, intermediate fit, and frail multiple myeloma patients with different survival and risk of toxicity from treatments in newly diagnosed myeloma. This score is based on age, level of dependence, and comorbidities. The CATS activities of daily living and the Lawton Instrumental Activity of Daily Living scores are used to assess dependence due to physical and or cognitive impairment. Comorbidities are defined using the Charlson Comorbidity Index. According to the score, intermediate fit patients are 76 to 80 years of age or younger ages with impaired functional abilities. While the frailty score is considered prognostic for mortality and non-hematologic toxicity, until now, we lack data supporting its use for treatment modifications. The goal of treatment in the intermediate fit patient group is to achieve good responses and reduce toxicity while preserving quality of life. Toxicity is a major concern in intermediate fit and frail patients since they are at a higher risk for adverse events that lead to treatment discontinuations. Methods to appropriately adjust treatment intensity in this group have been previously investigated in small trials, but a more definitive evidence-based strategy was needed. In order to assess safety and efficacy of the dose schedule adjusted regimen, the authors determined event-free survival as the primary endpoint. This was defined as progression or death of any cause, lenalidomide discontinuation, any hematologic grade four or non-hematologic grade three to four adverse events. Patients in the investigational arm received RDR, where after nine RD cycles, the lenalidomide dose was tapered to 10 mg and dexamethasone was discontinued. Patients in the standard arm received standard dose lenalidomide dexamethasone, or RD, until progression. Of the 199 evaluable patients enrolled, 101 received RDR and 98 received continuous RD. Median follow-up was 37 months. The results showed that dose-schedule-adjusted RDR resulted in prolonged event-free survival, accounting for a combination of toxicity and efficacy. Moreover, RDR induced similar progression-free survival and overall survival compared with standard continuous RD in this patient group. Since the trial was designed with event-free survival as the primary endpoint, there was not enough power to detect a statistically significant difference in progression-free survival. However, the outcome of the two arms is comparable. Additionally, there was no stratification at randomization. For example, according to prognostic factors or geriatric impairments. However, the patient characteristics were well balanced between the two groups. RD is also a regimen that has been used for many years, and newer combinations are now being explored for intermediate fit newly diagnosed multiple myeloma. Despite these limitations, the results provide practical insight in the management of these patients and confirm that sparing steroids after 9 to 12 months, often adopted in clinical practice because of toxicity, is a feasible strategy. In conclusion, LaRocca and colleagues confirmed the efficacy and feasibility of continuous lenalidomide therapy. An optimization of this combination 
which in this study involved stopping steroids and reducing lenalidomide dose after induction, can allow patients to remain on treatment longer, maintaining disease control over time. The results suggest at least an intermediate-fit elderly newly diagnosed myeloma patients, treatment intensity during continuous treatment can be de-escalated without a negative impact on outcome. Ongoing and future trials, including frailty-adjusted strategies to optimize treatment in the era of personalized therapy, will evaluate this steroid-free approach, and also with newer drugs and combinations, for example, including daratumumab. In an accompanying commentary, Sonia Swiegman from Amsterdam UMC in the Netherlands and Tanya Wilds from the Cancer and Aging Research Group in St. Louis, Missouri, note that authors laid out a foundation for high-quality evidence-based regimens that lower toxicity while preserving efficacy. The study results are important for clinical practice. Suggestions for future research include randomization after induction therapy or blinding participants and clinicians to randomization until induction is complete and investigation of daratumumab in intermediate fit and frail patients. Additionally, they suggest that future trials studying older adults may extend beyond just event-free survival to other novel composite outcomes with even greater patient-centeredness. For example, one such endpoint, termed overall treatment utility, was designed to reflect patient and clinician perspectives and incorporate both subjective and objective measures to assess whether the treatment overall had been worthwhile. Swiegman and Wilds conclude that there continues to be a need to prospectively investigate newer treatment regimens, especially novel immunotherapies, and make further refinements in geriatric assessment as we aim to provide personalized treatment regimens to our older patients with multiple myeloma. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.